reconciliation, as it's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and in particular verses 18 to 20. Reconciliation is the establishment of harmony and peace between enemies. Enemies are said to be reconciled when their hostility ceases and mutual love binds them together. The Greek term for reconciliation is used five times in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. Paul spoke of divine reconciliation in two primary ways. First, that God had reconciled Paul and us to himself, 2 Corinthians 5.18. Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself. Paul was an enemy of God. Paul had persecuted the church, and in turn, was persecuting Christ. It was the Lord Jesus that appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. Paul was traveling to Damascus in order to persecute the believers that had gathered there. And in Acts chapter 9 it reads, And it came about that as he, that is Paul, journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul was an enemy of God. Unwittingly, unknowingly, but an enemy nonetheless. We too, at one time, were enemies of God. Colossians 1.21 describes believers as follows. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So we have been reconciled, and in particular, reconciled through the Lord Jesus Christ. He died in our place, bearing God's wrath and making it possible for us to be reconciled to God. The second emphasis that Paul has in these verses is that not only has God reconciled us, but God has granted to us the ministry of reconciliation as well. Notice verse 18. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So not only was Paul reconciled to God, but now he was given the ministry of reconciling others to the Lord Jesus Christ as well. And so too we, having been reconciled to God, had the responsibility of taking the gospel message to an unsaved world with the intent of reconciling them to God as well. This is very fitting for a communion service, for communion celebrates two things. First, communion celebrates our fellowship with God through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That through his death, 
we are brought into fellowship with God, that we are reconciled to him. Secondly, communion celebrates the fellowship that we enjoy with one another as God's people. That we are together reconciled to God. And so we take communion corporately, together, celebrating a new relationship that we enjoy to one another because of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, 16-20, Paul talks about what the doctrine of reconciliation means practically. Being reconciled to God had some profound effects on the Apostle Paul. It brought some significant changes to his life. And we want to look at those changes or effects today in preparing our heart for communion. The first effect. What did it mean for the Apostle Paul to be reconciled to God? First, it meant that Paul no longer viewed mankind through a worldly or ungodly perspective. Notice verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh. Paul is saying that now he does not look upon man from a fleshly or humanistic perspective. That now Paul looks on a fallen mankind and a sinful world through a godly perspective. Paul had a different worldview before he was saved from that which was given to him after he was saved. There was a concern that was manifested after he was saved that was not present before he was saved. He gained a godly perspective of loving the world and a sense of compassion on those who were suffering as a result of sin. He shared a new, heavenly, godly perspective on a fallen, sinful world. He says, I don't view mankind through the flesh any longer. When we have been reconciled to God, we have a different view of the human race. We have come to understand our sinfulness. We've come to better understand the sinfulness of mankind. We've come to recognize that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That everyone stands in need of forgiveness. That each one needs to experience that love of God in their own hearts and minds. So it brought a profound way in which Paul looked at the world differently. Secondly, it meant that Paul no longer viewed Christ from a worldly or ungodly perspective. He had a different view of Christ as well. Notice verse 16. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Paul said, I knew Christ according to the flesh. He'd heard about Paul. Uh, excuse me. He'd heard about Christ. He heard about Jesus. He knew of Christ's claims that he was the Son of God. He knew that 
Christ offered salvation, if you will, to a world, he was well familiar with the person of Jesus Christ and his followers. And of course, Paul was on the road to Damascus in order to persecute the followers of Jesus Christ. But then he was saved. Then he was reconciled. Then he was brought into a relationship to Jesus Christ. And his view of Christ changed dramatically when he came to be reconciled to God. His view of Christ changed. Jesus said to the disciples in their earthly ministry, he said, who do men say that I am? And they said, some say thou art John the Baptist, son Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, but who do you say that I am? He said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed that unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. People have a lot of different views about who Jesus is. Some people think he is a prophet. Some people think he's a good teacher. Some people think he's a charlatan. Some people think he's an historical figure. Some people doubt his existence. There are all kinds of views about Jesus. But when a person is reconciled to God, their views of Jesus before they were saved and their views of Jesus after they saved are myriads of apart. We understand that he is the Christ. We understand that he is the Lord. We understand that he is the Son of God. We understand that he is all that he claims to be. Yes, he's a prophet. More than a prophet. He's a priest. And more than a priest. He's a king. And more than a king. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. He truly is the Son of God. Thirdly, it meant that Paul no longer viewed God's people from a worldly perspective. Those verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Many times this verse is preached on by itself. And the emphasis oftentimes is the need to manifest the character of a new creature, of those that have been reconciled to God. But in the context, it's moving in a progression from Paul's view of the non-saved world to Paul's view of Christ, and then Paul's view of anyone who truly knows the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And notice what he says about them in verse 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have come new. When a person is reconciled to God, it brings about a transformation of their hearts and lives. They are different people once they've been reconciled to God, once they come under his authority, once they they recognize the blessings of yielding to him. They are a different people. And this is a a climax in this particular passage. For not only is the world's view of mankind different from the Christian's view of mankind, not only is the, 
world's view of Christ different from the Christian's view of Christ. But very, very distinctly, the world's view of Christians is far different from the Christian's view of each other. There is a cynicism in this world about Christians that is really readily understandable. There is the assumption that Christians are by very nature hypocrites. Christians are people who say one thing and do another. That there is nothing that is really distinct about Christians. Their claims are false. Spirituality is arrogance. There is no basis to it. As I say, that is understandable because the world does not expect people to change. For the world, change is impossible. People are who and what they are. Here is a key difference between believers and non-believers. Non-believers do not believe that people can change. And so, the scripture raises the question, Jeremiah 13, 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. The scripture says, yes, it's true, on our own, we can't bring about any real transformation, any real lasting change. We are like the Ethiopian who can't change the color of his skin. We are like the leopard who can't change its spots. We are powerless, apart from being a new creation, apart from the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. But the Spirit of God is at work in our lives. And if a person comes to know Christ, they are a new creation. I'm sure you've heard the adage, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. We all know that, that statement. The idea is, people are what they are. And you just need to understand that. But that comes into our culture in some pretty powerful and some, some significant ways that we need to clearly demarcate that is scriptural and non-scriptural. One of the hot-button issues of our day and our culture, and with the whole Sandusky case, it just makes it even worse, is the whole issue of child molestation. And there is a basic premise, there's a basic understanding in our culture. And that is, if you are a child molester, you will always be a child molester. If you have been a, a predator, you will always be a predator. And so, a person who has gone to prison, 
or gone to counseling, or has, quote-unquote, paid their debt to society as a child molester, if they move to another location, guess what they have to do? They have to register as a child molester. They have to register so that they go on record as publicly declaring that they've been a child molester with the intent that you then will guard your children, you will protect them against this individual who, left to his own devices, left to himself, is going to perpetrate the act again. One of the primary differences between secular counselors and biblical counselors is this very thought that people can change by the grace of God. In secular counseling, there is very little hope that is offered people for change. Instead of a solution, there is an identification. You label what somebody's problem is. You identify it. This is their problem. This is their area of weakness, or what have you. And it carries a label so that you can understand why you are the way you are, or so that your relatives can understand why you do some of the things you do, or why you behave in such a way. It's because of your condition, and you are labeled, you are diagnosed. And people become identified and and, uh, defined by their problems. That is who and what they are. I remember being involved in one person's life and they had been going for for counseling and they asked me to meet with their their counselor and I did and we were talking about some issues and we were talking about some expectation of what the person's life was going to be like in the future and the person that was the counselor said to me and, and I quote you know pastor they're never going to change. That late, you know, pastor, they're never going to change. And I said, I'm not willing to buy that premise. I said, I don't know whether they're going to change or not, but I know that they can by the grace and power of God. That is the reality. If a person comes to know Christ, they have the power to change, and God does begin to work in their lives and bring about changes. That is one of the tremendously distinct differences between a worldly worldview and a Christian worldview. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. For the Christian, there is great hope and expectation that when people come to Christ, they are changed forever. For the doctrine of reconciliation teaches us that not only are we reconciled to God, but we are reconciled to one another. That in bringing about a change in our relationship to God, it brings about a change in relationship to one another. One of my 
joys uh, that I had when I was writing Bible Fellowship Church was to be able to participate in a, in a wedding. The wedding was that of Dave and uh, Donna Gundrum. Some of you will know that name. David Gundrum is the executive director of Church Extension of the Bible Fellowship Church. David had been previously married to Donna. They had a very rocky marriage. They had a lot of difficulties. And they eventually divorced. Donna's mother, David's former mother-in-law, attended the Reading Bible Fellowship Church. She prayed regularly for David and Donna. She was asking for God's work to be done in their lives. And David came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. And when he did, his life changed dramatically. And to her credit, Donna's mother just kept saying to Donna, you know, David is so different. David comes to church now. David is seeking to bring honor and glory to God. He is different. He is different. She just kept pounding that into a into her daughter's head. He is different. He is different. Give him a chance. And they started to date once again. And sure enough, David was different. He had been reconciled to God. And as a result, his marriage was being reconciled as well. And so, again, David then uh, married, remarried, his wife, Donna, for a relationship to Jesus Christ brings about real and meaningful, significant changes. Fourthly, it means that God is the source of reconciliation. Verse 18. Now, all these things are from God. God is the initiator of the reconciliation process. Why does man... And God get back together. All the credit goes to God. God is seeking out this relationship. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. After Adam and Eve had sinned by eating that uh, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what did they do? They hid themselves. They fled from God. They didn't want anything to do with God. And the scripture teaches us that that's where mankind is. Mankind flees from God. God reaches out. God takes the first step. God takes the second step. God takes the third step. God does everything in his... uh, It is all of God that man puts their faith and trust in God. Romans 5.8, which is another passage on reconciliation, says this, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still going away, while we still had no interest in the things of God, God sent his son to die in our place. He took the initiative. He worked to bring us back. It isn't that mankind is wooing God. God is wooing mankind. So that we can say, we loved him 
because he first loved us. He first loved us. He's doing the reconciling. He is bringing us back. And so we respond to him. We are won over by him. So earlier in the chapter, Paul says, Christ's love compels us. Christ's love compels us. Because of this new relationship that he enjoys to God, now Christ's love compels him. Fifthly, it means that reconciliation is accomplished through Christ, verse 18. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ. In order to be reconciled with God, it meant that uh, all of our offenses somehow had to be dealt with. And the way that they were dealt with was, again, by God's initiation. He sent his son to die on the cross. In order to bring us back into a relationship with him, he did everything that was necessary for us to be forgiven. You understand that? Everything that was necessary for us to be forgiven, God did. And he simply invites us to accept that forgiveness. He simply invites us to come back into relationship with him. Through Jesus Christ. Sixthly, it means that we have the responsibility to take the good news of reconciliation to others. Verse 18. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God has given us that ministry. Notice verse 19. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. We are to be reconciling a lost world to God. Bring them back into a relationship with God. And we are to be reconciling a world to one another. These two thoughts are inseparable in the Word of God. They are love for God and love for one another. Starts with the commandments. The first and great commandment is, Thou shalt love the Lord your God, all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. And the second is, Like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Reconciliation is about bringing us into a right relationship with God and about bringing us into a right relationship with our neighbor. Jesus said, By this so all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. That in being reconciled to God, we are reconciled to one another. Listen to the description of the ministry of John the Baptist. Luke 1.17 And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make a people ready for the Lord. So there is a turning of the disobedient to the heart of the righteous. There is a reconciliation to God but in that same ministry, there is a turning of the hearts of the fathers back to the children. It changes our view of our families. It changes the view of our spouses. It changes the view of our, uh, towards our children. And it changes our view towards other Christians. We are reconciled to God 
and we are reconciled to one another. God did not hold our trespasses against us. Look at verse 19. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That that God overlooked their sinfulness. Now, he overlooked it not in the sense that he could just totally forget about it because he was righteous and holy and he had to be just. We looked at that last week. But, in his righteousness and holiness, he found a way out. And that is that that wrath that we deserve would be poured out upon his son. And so we've been reconciled through Jesus Christ. But there is a lesson for us who have been reconciled. And that is found in Ephesians 4.32. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. This reconciliation that has taken place between ourselves and God, wholly initiated by God, is now to be reflected in our human relationships. We are to take the role of God, who doesn't hold the trespasses of people against them. The things that people have done against us, that we are willing to forgive, we are willing to try to remove We are trying to reconcile it, bringing back this relationship, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. That we take the first step. That we seek to be reconciled. That means that we reach out to our spouse. That means we reach out to our children. That means that we take the initiative. That we want this relationship to be restored. We take the initiative with our neighbor, with our teachers, whoever it is that is in enmity with us. That now we are trying to bring them back in relationship to us and, of course, ultimately in relationship to God. What a different worldview. What a different perspective. Not sitting back and waiting for people to come crawling to us. And to beg us. But for us to go to them. So number seven. It means Paul's message is about reconciliation. Verse 19. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. The word of reconciliation is the very message about reconciliation. That is the way in which the gospel is being characterized in this passage. What's the gospel about? The gospel is about how can a right relationship be created between God and us? And in turn, how can a right relationship be created between ourselves and others? We are to tell people how they can get right with God and right with one another. And then lastly, it means that Paul views his life as representing the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 20. One of the most powerful verses in the Word of God. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are Christ's representative. We are like a foreign embassy. We are like a diplomat who has been sent by the president to deliver 
his message. That diplomat that's going to a foreign nation trying to restore the relationship between the United States and that nation. That diplomat goes, declares the treaty, declares how this reconciliation can take place, declares what is required, and then represents not only the message, but the very character of our nation in seeking to bring this to pass. So, in verse 20, we have both the message and the fervor. Notice verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us. We become God's mouthpiece. We become God's spokesman. We are declaring his message. That's the gospel. That's telling people how they can be right with God. We don't have any right to change it. We're just ambassadors. We're just the messengers. We're just taking the news. This is how you can be brought into a right relationship with God by believing in Jesus Christ, accepting him as the one who paid for your sin and a recognition of your failure to have loved God with all your heart and soul and all your mind. And now, by the grace of God, saying, you know, I want to live that transformed life. I want the Spirit of God to be at work in me. If you say those things, you are saved. That's the message. And then notice the fervor. At the end of verse 20, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Later in this passage, we're not going to get there this morning, but he says, I urge you. I urge you. Here it is, I beg you. I beg you. What a picture of Jesus begging people to be reconciled to God. One of the greatest pictures of that is during the triumphal entry, that last week, that Passion Week, as Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. And remember, as he is winding his way down the roadway, he stops at a place that overviewed the city of Jerusalem. And there the scripture tells us that Jesus paused and he wept. And he wept. And he said, How often I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you would not. But you would not. How often I have longed that you would come into fellowship with me and you would not. I've seen husbands tearfully beg their spouses to be reconciled. I've seen wives tearfully beg their husbands to be reconciled. I know parents that weep over their children that have gone astray and desperately want that relationship to be restored. I know children whose parents have virtually disowned them, don't want anything to do with them. 
and desperately want to be restored. Here in this passage, the emphasis is on us taking the godly position and role as though God were speaking through us. As though God was entreating through us and in this passage, though Christ was begging through us for a lost world to be reconciled to God. To experience His forgiveness. To come under His protection. To know His goodness. His provision. Won't you come and enjoy this relationship to God that He has made possible through to you through Jesus Christ? Don't be hard-hearted. Don't refuse. Don't dig in your heels. Come to Jesus Christ is what this passage is about. Begging people to be reconciled to God. What a different worldview. Not standing and condemning and saying, you made your bed, now lie in it. We live in a culture that really scares me. Because conservatism and Christianity is being viewed as one. And I'll tell you, there's a whole bunch of aspects of conservative movement that scares me as we think about it relating to Christianity. And part of it is its meanness. It's arrogance. It's the way that it speaks about other people in a very derogatory manner. And isn't really interested in reconciling them. In fact, anything that is viewed as reconciling is, in the modern vernacular, compromise. What a vast difference the Christian perspective is. That we would be begging people. The very people at work that have given you a hard time. The very people at work that have lied about you. The very child that has stolen from you. The very neighbor that fights with you about the fence and the dog coming over on your property and doing its business and all those kinds of things. The world says get even. The world says don't care. The scripture says, beg. Beg them to be reconciled. To experience the forgiveness of God. And Paul is also using this as a passage for us to understand what motivates him, what moves him. Why does Paul act the way he does? Answer, he says, because I'm Christ's ambassador. So I need to forgive people. Why is Paul forgiving these Corinthians that have so miserable things to say to him? Because he's Christ's ambassador. He has to forgive because Christ forgives. We have to forgive because Christ forgives. 
we are going to communion. We're going to celebrate the reconciliation that we have with God and one another. That we are brought into a new relationship with God through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're brought into a new relationship with one another. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, um, I invite you to participate. Men, you can get up and start getting ready uh, uh, to uh, partake of communion. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, then uh, we invite you to partake. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that you refrain. Not because of any rule that we have, but because of the teaching of Scripture. But let me just say to you, if you don't know Christ, there is no reason why this morning you can't come to know Christ. There's no reason why this morning you can't take communion. Our scripture this morning teaches us that Christ is actually begging you this morning to come to him, to experience his forgiveness. He holds no animosity towards you. Whatever you've done, whatever sin you've created, he simply says, I paid for it. I've done what's necessary. You can have a relationship to me. I want to have it with you. The ball's in your court if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Will you accept the gift of reconciliation? Will you be brought into relationship with one another, with Him? And then secondly, for us who know Christ as our Savior, we ask the question simply, who do we need to be reconciled to? Who do we need to forgive? Who do we need to come into that right relationship with? And what action are we willing to take? How much are we willing to forgive? And how much are we ready to pay to restore these relationships? And if you would come forward.